Hi, I'm Chris Till and this is the Digital Health, Digital Capitalism Podcast. Hi, so this is the second uh, Digital Health, Digital Capitalism Podcast. So thanks for coming back um, and listening to this one and welcome to anyone who's new. I'm still quite new to this podcasting stuff, so I'm still getting my head around how to get decent sound, um, but there are a few issues with this episode, but they do get a bit better uh, with the later episodes. Anyway, this um, episode has got an interview with Minna Ruckenstein, who's an academic based in Finland, who I think has done a lot of really interesting work um, in consumer research, uh, mostly is her background. And she takes a very critical, I think, realistic and balanced view of digital culture and particularly how um, economic interests seep into everyday consumer habits. As usual, you'll be able to get a full list of the podcasts on my blog, which is thisisnotasociology.blog. And you can follow me on Twitter at Chris H. Till, and you can download these podcasts from iTunes and SoundCloud and wherever else you get podcasts from. Okay, so on with the interview. Okay, um, so I'm now talking to um, Minna Ruckenstein, who is a principal investigator at the Data, Self and Society Group at the University of Helsinki. So, hi Minna. Hi, hi. Hi, thanks for talking to me. Um, so, uh, Minna is someone whose work I've been following for um, quite a long time, and she's been uh, writing and doing research in a number of areas that are relevant to to the theme of this podcast. Um, but uh, I think um, traditionally her work has been in uh, around consumption. Would, would that be right? Yeah, yeah. But I, I'd say consumption defined in a in a pretty like not in a sense that what people are buying or or whatever, but more like how how the interaction between people and consumer goods or consumer services is is kind of uh, uh, developing. Mm. So you're kind of interested, I think, in, um, in issues around identity um, in relation to consumption and, and the kind of the interactions people have with themselves and uh, develop a sense of self and, uh, and that kind of thing. Would that, would that be right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not looking at identity, you know, through the kind of lens of identity, mm. uh, looking at interactions around things, uh, different kinds of um, um, lots of kind of uh, what kind of practices people have in, in terms of consumption. And then I've, I've been always interested in uh, formations of value and translations of value. Yeah, that's something I think we, we will talk about today. That's something that I, I'm very interested in in your work and in those different ideas about value and uh, value in terms of kind of moral values and in terms of economic values. And I think that they can come together quite nicely in a lot of the stuff that you uh, that, that you've discussed. So you said that you're you've previously written that you're interested in investigating the linking and merging of everyday aims, technological devices and market making efforts. So could you explain a bit further about what, what you mean by by that? So that that merging of everyday aims, technological devices, and market-making efforts. How do you see that happening in broad terms? Well, if you if you think um, people want to do something in in their everyday lives, or they they want to become better people, or they want to become better, you know, 
whatever. And this aim of similar kinds of aims, they are very often technologically supported these days. Mm. If you want to have social relations, you have it in social media. Or if you want to, uh, if you want to be a good parent, you bring your child to uh, to a restaurant and you buy a, a nice dinner. So, so basically, um, anything that we do usually has some link to 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 some form of consumption these days. Mm. And I'm very interested in how these how these uh, how fir- first of all how everyday life is so consumption driven in many ways. But then also, you know, uh, how people are trying to um, you talk you mentioned you know moral aims mm. or. or Moral values, you know, we still don't want to see that our everyday aims are consumption-driven, even if they would be tied to consumption. So there's this very interesting tension happening always. So, uh, so we use technologies when we are when we are kind of fulfilling our aims, and uh, and we don't necessarily see it. We don't see these connections. So we need research researchers mm. to kind of point them out that actually. Uh, the way we communicate is very much, uh, very much also shaped by by the technological services that we have. They suggest us a certain way of communicating with each other and, and these kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that, that, that um, a lot of our morality is, is is related to our communication, the way that we communicate with one another. There's been a lot of discussion recently about uh, around the kind of morality, the value of communication in terms of political discourse with. Lots of you know things that have happened in in recent times, um, but I think that more kind of um, seemingly mundane everyday kind of communication that happens through technologies is really um, is really crucial and, and often overlooked. I think. Exactly. Exactly. This was exactly what I was trying to say. <laughs> um, something else that you said is that um, you discussed how uh, the the what you call the digital encouragement to consume occurs. Um, by which I think you're at least partly talking about advertising and promotion, um, but perhaps broader things as well. But uh, what would you say is distinctive about this digital encouragement to consume uh, as opposed to more traditional types of advertising? Well, uh, if, you, if you think in terms of um, a very um, concrete example, um, the way children used to come to the world of advertisement was they were watching TV and then they were advertisements but these days it's completely blurred you know mm-hmm. advertisement becomes uh, part of their social relations uh, companies make nice videos for for children to to share and like and comment on uh, mm-hmm. there's uh, there's a lot of uh, product placements there's all kinds of things so so basically we cannot really uh, see where marketing and advertisement end these mm-hmm. days and I think that this is, uh, if you if you're thinking kind of like in terms of you know, what do I want to do with my research? I want to I want to demonstrate the blurring in order for us to to have some mechanisms to say that okay, can you see it? That here, children's worlds and advertisement is becoming completely blurred. Children are working as little marketers for for companies, and there's 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 nothing to really even stop it. So, so we don't have even, you know, regulative mechanisms for for saying that. Oh no, you cannot become a video logger and then you get like uh, um, gifts from companies and then you talk about these gifts and present them and people like them. 
this is this is all new. Absolutely, yeah, and and we we've had this quite well established regulatory frameworks. Uh, I think in most countries um, with TV advertising, and that's kind of still in place. Um, and it seems like we just don't really know how to deal with this these kind of new uh, new phenomena at all. And one thing that I find interesting about this is that there's these whole new kind of genres that have emerged of like um, through kind of YouTube and similar means of uh, things like unboxing videos. Um, or I think it's sometimes called haul videos. But literally, yeah, it's just yeah. people opening boxes of things, of products that they've either bought themselves or they've been sent um, by the companies. Um, and this is actually a, a, a genre of of entertainment. Yeah, exactly. So unboxing videos are a very good example of uh, of how how kind of uh, what people do and and what is marketing becomes like completely blurred because sometimes they can be also uh, they are they're mocking the product so it's mm. not necessarily only that they you know they demonstrate these products in a, yeah. in a good light necessarily so there's also that mm. aspect so so um so basically um and you know in terms of work you can also say that you know when does the work end and marketing mm. come because you know many of uh uh, of, of the fields of work are expecting people to be marketers of their employees also. So, so mm. also there, you know, it's kind of like uh, it, it, the mechanism is completely different than, uh, than it traditionally were. And, and here also, you know, one of the interests that I have is the, the quantified self phenomenon. And, and of mm. course, you know, all this quantification, quantification of likes and, and appearances and all these things, you know, becomes part of this, uh, this mechanism as well. Exactly. I, think, I just want to pick up on, you mentioned about this kind of blurring between, um, sort of blurring of identities with kind of consumption and this blurring of where, where work ends and advertising begins and where kind of blurring uh, between work and leisure and you have you've drawn on some of the work of digital labor scholars people like Tiziana Terranova uh, and others um, to think about this this kind of relationship between um, the value that we produce for companies um, through doing this kind of work and you've also talked about it in terms of um, the notion of prosumption um, and you've presented that this labor that that, that people put into um, liking things into talking about products as a subtle and su seductive and manipulative process. Um, and uh, as I read it, you were presenting people as being to some extent manipulated into providing content for online services. Um, first of all, would, you, it, would that be an accurate way of characterizing at least part of what you're saying? Um, and secondly, do you think this is something that we, that, that we need to be resisting, that we need to be challenging? Well, I think um, the thing is that, you know, language, is it, is it manipulation? It depends on the perspective because, uh, because there is this, this idea that in order for you to, to, um, in order for you to um, be interested in, in creating content for somewhere, you have to be somehow attached to it. So it has to feel, it doesn't, if it feels manipulative, you're not doing it anymore. So it has to feel like, I want to do it, and and I have my own interests in doing it. So 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 basically, this very um, 
it's very subtle because if if people feel that you know um, they are too much like invited, like now you have to register to this service so mm-hmm. we can understand uh, what kind of person you are, so we can we can target you with advertisement. They will not do it. They will use use fake names and and mm-hmm. and uh, you know try to distort this process in many ways. So 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 there's always that. But the whole um, digital economy online is based on the fact that we have to uh, produce content. So so basically it is it is a very strange kind of economy in the sense that it's it's it looks looks to us that it's free, but then on the other hand we are paying for it with our time, with our dedication, plus with the digital traces that we are leaving online. So so it's it's a it's a kind of a um, a business world that if it w- if it were developed in a more controlled manner, it might not have become what it is now. Mm. Because now we are seeing that okay, well this is this is a very strange uh, strange kind of economy. Like for instance, Shoshan um, Tupov uh, calls it the the surveillance capitalism because uh, because basically basically the business models are based on on what we are leaving behind us. So, so in that sense, and what was the second part of your question? And to what extent do you think this this is something that should be resisted or or needs to be? Yeah, well, well, of course, I I think it should be resisted because it because it's not in a way um, we don't know who to fight for necessarily in this type of economy. We don't know where the control is. Mm. So basically, with our digital traces things are done without our knowledge and they could even be harmful for us. Mm. So so in that sense, yes. Uh, the tricky question is how do you resist it when when these services have become already so normalized that we think that, okay, I cannot not use Google or I cannot not use uh, Facebook or, or or Skype because they're part of you know part of my everyday life. So 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 what is what are the alternatives? What could be a more fair Digital economy. There are a lot of people who are thinking about it currently, but we don't have uh, we don't have uh, good alternatives yet. So, so on an individual level, of course, you can you can resist by not using this service and trying to anonymize your movements online and all kinds of things. But of course, in the bigger picture, they should not be consumer choices. There should be uh, there should be a better visibility of of, of how value is being is extracted of what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, what I find interesting about this is that uh, it seems that a lot of people aren't too concerned, um, maybe this is particularly kind of younger people, I'm not sure, too concerned about um, Microsoft or Facebook or Google having this data. They kind of know that they do. Um, it, but it seemed people did get quite upset when they knew that those companies were sharing that data with uh, governments. And, and, and nation states that was seen as much more kind of sinister or or problematic um because they would seem to me to be the the, the obvious alternative for uh, providing these things uh, if if these kinds of technologies and services had developed 60 or 70 years ago they probably would have been state run in the way that telephone yeah. systems were um you know rail systems were and this kind of thing and probably would have thought about differently about it then as well um but that kind of that, that that difference in perception to me uh, is interesting. It's very interesting, and and it is very interesting that 
is there a, a kind of a generation developing for whom um, critiquing commercialization of everyday life is not such a you know such an important aim so so it is also i'm i'm wondering sometimes if uh, if we just see the world in a fundamentally different way because uh, because uh, we were still in the world where advertisement was in its place mm. and and they have not necessarily been in that world mm. so so they haven't really they can't even you know understand that there was a world where you could much clear, you had much more clarity to see where the commercial world ends and and what the limits are so so it's kind of like this happy blurring is happening and when, and then exactly what you said was very interesting that then then the regulatory mechanisms and the state becomes the villain and mm. and that is of course you know um, we live in a in a in a Nordic uh, welfare society and even here you know people are saying no more regulation it's like <laughs> okay welcome Trumpism <laughs> exactly exactly. <laughs> So we've talked a bit about the, about these these tensions between uh, sort of the advertising, the kind of the capitalist practices and consumption, um, and people's kind of identities. And you've um, I've been really interested in the way that you've described uh, the intimate connection between digital data and everyday lives. Um, and I think that this has been um, one of the central themes, particularly maybe of your more recent work. Um, how how is it that you've tried to get at that relationship? Um, and, and that kind of everyday aspect uh, of people's consumption uh, and use of digital digital things. Well, I think um, we've done various kinds of um, studies. Uh, we started with uh, with a self tracking study that was very explorative in the sense that we were we were really interested in in people's relationship to their personal data. Mm. Does it talk to them? What does it say to them? And and the interesting thing was that that um, people find it very compelling. Of course, it has to be data that that somehow that they can read that has a relationship to their life. Mm. So, so uh, I've done two studies where where you could really see this. One was uh, data about stress and recovery, and another one was uh, was um, direct to consumer genetic testing that uh, that people can read things about themselves with the data. Mm. But the, the, the mechanism, how it's done, it's, it's, you know, there are various ways of doing it. But I think that what data gives, it's, it gives some sort of a sense of, uh, we've called it uh, mechanical objectivity. So there's some sort of mechanical objectivity. You get numbers, you get kind of uh, some certainty. But then when that enters in the everyday life, it becomes kind of... Um, qualified again so so the way these numbers are interpreted is not necessarily the way they were meant to be interpreted mm. but they get all kinds of uh, uh, contextualization so uh, a concrete example um, uh, genetic testing results they are read in light of astrology um, family histories nutrigenomics um, what else data analytics so basically, people bring their interpretative frameworks, and, and this data, this this study was like I was I was like I couldn't even imagine what people were saying. <laughs> After every interview, I was like, 
wow, there's a Jehovah Witness who says that he's looking for the biblical genealogical chart from his uh, genetic testing results. There's the there's the woman who says that yes, this does remind me of uh, of, of astrological maps. You know, you see the genetic risks, and they're a little bit like the like the uh, what are they moons and stars. So so, and that's that's the tricky thing that we really have to be close to those interpretations to 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 understand that where where people are going with this, these different data streams. And of course, you know, it appears like, okay, this is, this is, this is too wild. This is, this is too hybrid. This is too odd, you know, can't do anything with this. But, but it tells us, tells us that there's, there's something there that, that kind of uh, fascinates. And this fascination is, is, is just brought to different places. That is that is so fascinating, and, it's, and especially in the context of, um, I think a lot of the sociology um, and kind of related literature that, that's, that's been written on um, sort of the rise of genetics in the last twenty years, thirty years or so, uh, has tended towards this idea of uh, an in, an increasing sort of genetic social imaginary uh, and a sort of a geneticization of life, um, uh, almost as if the genetic genetic science is kind of colonizing everyday life in, in, in a, almost like a medicalization way. But what, you're, what you've suggested is something quite different, that people are taking it on and kind of creating some kind of bricolage or something like that. And I think what, this is maybe what you've referred to as a lifestyleization of genetic influences. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'd say that, of course, it's because, because uh, you have to also remember that... Uh, direct-to-consumer genetics are, are they're bought online, so it's not serious to begin with. So people don't expect at least the things, you know, because some people say that, you know, people don't understand this difference, but at least the Finnish people that I talk to, they, they understand it very well, that this is, uh, it's not serious mm. because it's, uh, you buy it online, you know, how could it be? Mm. So, so it is immediately in the kind of the consumption framework. And then you're much freer to bring it to places. You know, if, if your doctor would give you the same information, it would be it would be a different kind of information. So here, you know, media is 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 the message. So um, some of your work has looked at um, what you called a new con- consumer personas and how they've developed, and you've discussed how. Um, market devices and technologies contribute to the development of these. You've also, I think, uh, you've drawn on uh, David Graeber's uh, assertion that we shouldn't really talk about consumption anymore, uh, but rather discuss the sphere of the production of human beings. Consuming things, and I think for that I include all the things we're talking about around self-tracking and, and, and the, the use of data and the use of kind of Facebook and, and, and these kinds of things, is actually part of the, the process of constituting ourselves and our, our, ourselves, our subjectivities. But of course, in all of these, or most of these contexts we're talking about, as with the uh, genet- uh, direct consumer genetic testing, these are all commercial and, and in some senses corporatized practices. So for you, to what extent do you think corporations are now in control of this process of producing human beings and producing consumer personas, producing our identities. Yeah, um, 
Graeber's claim that consumption sphere should be you know, replaced uh, uh, with the production of human being sphere is, of course, it's, it's, it's very provocative. But in a way, uh, how I think about it is that he, he tries to make us um, see that it is very artificial to try to take this consumption out of this whole process. And, and it, when we are doing it, it might, uh, like for instance, you know, many people think that, okay, you know, uh, you're studying consumption. It's something that they have a very, very kind of um, definite idea of where that, where that's taking place. You know, it's, it's consumption. And, and often, you know, this kind of moral kicks in that it's something, you know, lighthearted that people do, you know, luxury consumption or whatever and and you don't understand that it's it's so ingrained in our everyday doings and everything that we consume already has some sort of uh, some sort of uh, morale in it because it often has to do with how we how we are produced as as um, as parents as scholars as uh, as uh, uh, good mothers or whatever so 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 basically it's it's um, it's in a way um, it's it's artificial to keep this idea, and that's the other concept that you already also mentioned. You know the the, the consumption of presumption that also tries to kind of do this, and and again it's 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 a horrible term presumption, production and consumption, whatever. Uh, we have presumption, but also there is that we could you know only look at the production and we would also see consumption mm. because production doesn't exist if there isn't some aspect of consumption you know who would produce anything if there weren't some consumption yeah. involved so so basically they are always so so um, so tied to each other but it's basically the economy that we've uh, we've we've kind of thought about the economy that we can you know this this these nice three three little spheres we have production then we have distribution and then we have consumption and in our thinking we are still kind of tied to this uh, this kind of uh, division yeah absolutely um but to what extent do you think um are, are we as you said there's always these have always been really kind of tied together maybe more than we than we realized but perhaps they are more integrated than they, than they were in some ways. And certainly I think perhaps the identity uh, or subjectivity aspect of this with the consumption and, uh, and the production. To what extent do you think we as citizens, uh, individuals, subjects, whatever, are losing some kind of control over the production of these, these identities because of the perhaps increasing push of corporations into these areas and it strikes to me a lot of the things that, that, that you studied, like to do with genetics, to do with self-tracking of, of health and, uh, and exercise and other things, they are quite intimate things, quite intimate to our bodies and our, our identities and our interactions. And so if corporations are increasingly getting into this, these areas, yeah. are they just enabling us to do that stuff? Or are they, yeah. to some extent, shaping Shaping, shaping and enabling, but shaping a lot. You know, if you mm. think about you and me, we we both study these processes that have to do with uh, datification, and datification is also commercialization. So, mm. so basically, 
now we are witnessing this process that everything about life that can be datified will eventually become datified and and it gives a it, it gives a very new kind of uh, look and perspective to yourself when you know your breathing and your steps and your your genetics are all like possible areas of consumption uh, some of some of the consumption forms that exist now they are not um, very interesting yet because uh, many people are not drawn to self-tracking you know as, as it is now they don't want to modify their life with self-tracking devices but I, I think there will be uh, all kinds of um, new new areas where where this datafied life is is taken advantage of so so yes we 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 don't we're not controlling it very well mm. what is what is what is kind of what is good and what is what is not good about it i think it's uh we have to keep following it uh, in some of the work that you've conducted with um mika panza on self-tracking you've emphasized the themes of, of visibility and self-optimization in the kind of the, the self-tracking uh, discourse, I suppose. Um, and they would seem to me perhaps as being part of that, um, that, that influence on our identities. Um, yes, yes. I mean, to what extent would you see the, those kinds of themes as, uh, do they fit with a broader commercialization of life, that self-optimization and vis- visibility? Does it push that kind of commercialization or is there something else going on there? Well, self-optimization is is, is very interesting because um, a lot of the self-tracking devices and applications are either kind of catered for us in this uh, in this um, um, in this um, context of self-optimization. But then when we've looked at what people actually do with these devices, they're not necessarily that interested in self-optimization. So basically the self-optimization um, um, kind of desire is, 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 is a very particular kind of desire. And, and we see that it's, it's fitness people and, and people who already have this desire, you know, they are drawn to self-tracking in order to optimize some more. But then there are all these other people who who come to come to the self tracking field with curiosity or kind of uh, other questions, or they might even want you know the devices to work on them to optimize you know their everyday lives, and then they realize that ah oh, this doesn't work. They have to do so, something themselves. Yeah. Why should I? Why should I? You know this didn't make me exercise more. Yeah. So so they drop it. So I'd say that that in a way the marketing paradigm has very much relied on this idea of uh, of the neoliberal subject, mm. and ironically also many critical scholars mm. have uh, have taken that same kind of approach. So you could say that the marketers and marketers <laughs> and the critical scholars have found each other. They believe that there is there is there is a, a huge desire to self optimize. But what we've seen is that there, there's a lot of, you know, uh, resentment towards uh, self-tracking field because people don't want this type of life modification. It feels uh, foreign and, and it feels uh, unpleasant. So, so again, you know, I'd say that that that's uh, uh, you have to look at the self-optimization from like different perspectives and where it works and where it doesn't. Visibility is another thing because it's 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 much much less. Um, 
less kind of uh, defined by 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 you know what is visibility? Visibility is that we see something that we didn't see before. Very very interesting. Uh, all of datafication is based on based on that that it allows us to see something that we haven't seen before. And I'd say that now we really need um, work that that kind of um, pushes us to think that what can you do with all these different kinds of data sets in terms of, uh, of seeing things. We just published an article on social rhythms of the heart, which was, a, which was a, an attempt to demonstrate that, okay, you could also use these self-tracking devices to, to demonstrate something collective. Mm. And, and I would see that, that with that kind of approach, you could, you could start talking about, you know, politics of physiologies, you know, make visible how you have all these devices, you want to make people stand more or sit less at work. And then people who are using these devices, they say, well, I can't stand at this. I, I can't sit less at work. So you basically come to the collective level, you know, where you can feel certain kinds of things. And I think Physiologies are interesting because people can't control them. You know, if you're a bus driver and you 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 sit all day in the bus in in extremely stressful conditions, of course you have high high blood pressure. So so we could also use these self-tracking devices in a way that that would make us see health in a completely different way in a non-individualistic manner. That's really that's really fascinating because that's something I, I think I've struggled with and I, I've tried to think about at the same time as being quite really excited about the potential of these kinds of technologies, um, technologies and the data as a means for solidarity um, and for connection and for, for thinking on the social level because so much of it seems to seems to push us down that individualized route. Yeah, but so so that's exactly it because. Uh... Uh, when we started doing our first study, we thought, okay, this is this is great because uh, because you could also demonstrate some sort of collective processes. The the study that we did didn't uh, didn't succeed in doing all what we wanted to do. But then we had all kinds of research designs in mind, like uh, geographies of loneliness and and things that or, or think about you know. Um, tracking of finances and, and uh, air quality in polluted cities and all these things where you could demonstrate that actually political decisions or political um, ambitions, they have very, very concrete effects on the physiological level. And I think that this, this would be like really, really interesting uh, health research. And that kind of takes us back to that those ideas around kind of uh, resistance as well. We're talking about how uh, and whether we should be resisting these kinds of things and the, the, the kind of the, the kind of the the, the influence of, of capitalism of, of corporations, I suppose. And this strikes me again as some, uh, as, a, as a means to do that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so basically, we we could use the data also to talk back, and not only you know. Uh, be data sources for companies, but actually use use the data to 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 talk back and and uh, and of course you know um, there's not that many ways of doing it yet. But I I 
I think they will be in the, in the future. I think, I think the first thing, um, publication of yours I read was, um, well, one, certainly one of the first was a um, paper you wrote doing an analysis of um, representations of quantified self in the magazine Wired. Um, and I think this links to the um, the previous points about the, 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 the kind of the discourses of, of quantified self and um, visibility and self-optimization. And you kind of um, did this extremely interesting kind of, uh, discourse analysis, I suppose, um, of of how it was represented um, in this uh, in this publication. I was wondering, what is it about the magazine Wired? Um, do you think that that's why why do you think it's had such a big influence, particularly on on the area of self tracking, but this kind of continued influence around the development of, of these new technologies and how they're viewed? So, I mean, so, so I suppose, why did you choose it? Why is it such a sort of paradigmatic example? Yeah. Uh, Wired was was kind of uh, an obvious choice because um, because Gary Wolf, one of the, the editors of Wired, is also uh, very active in the quantified self movement. So so in this case, it was actually the same people yeah. around Wired who 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 have been promoters of the movement. Um, I think I think it was interesting also to look at there's certain kind of uh, ways of of presenting things in Wired, which are kind of repeating again and again, mm. and how they played in, in the case of quantified self. So basically, uh, what kind of history was suggested to the notion of the quantified self, uh, going back to cybernetics and then mm. looking at, you know, various kinds of uh, behavior change modeling systems and, and, and the history of feedback loops and, and these kinds of things. So basically, basically certain, certain computational self themes that had been had been around before how wired actually very um, very cleverly brought them together so I, I also thought that it was a, it was a, it was very exemplary of, uh, of of conceptual work of how you how you defined a metaphor that starts to then travel so so rapidly mm. in in the scholarly world and i think that this is also you know remarkable what we tried to say in in, in the in the piece that who is actually doing this conceptual work these days if we take these terms without thinking where they came from mm. we are already you know taking a lot of ideological you know um stuff with them and and i think that uh if the whole idea of self-tracking was kind of contextualized differently, uh, the, the, the kind of the conversation that we have now could be quite different. You know, if, if we would think about self-tracking as, as uh, in, in the framework of adult toys, for instance, you know, the whole, uh, whole conversation would look very different. But they, that particular way of framing it in terms of uh, self-optimization, in terms of feedback loops, brought, you know, kind of framed it in a very mechanistical way. And, and then it's also, I think it's understandable why we see it in the framework of, uh, of Nicholas Rose and technologies of self in a very particular way. But think about it, if it was, you know, poise, we would immediate, immediately see it in a, in a kind of an entertainment framework where it often belongs much, much better. 
Yeah, that, that's really fascinating, and, and I think I think you're absolutely right, and uh, that actually often as academics uh, and as researchers, um, it can be quite easy just to take to take that kind of, that presentation, even though what, often what we say that we're doing is we're trying to pick behind the kind of the, the surface and, and to uncover the, the, the almost the hidden structures and how things are. Um, if something fits with our kind of worldview or easily slots into, as you said, a, a certain kind of theoretical frame of understanding, such as the, you know, the very influential work of, of someone like Nicholas Rose, then it is quite easy to just take on board that. And I think that's why certainly a lot of the early, earliest writing on self-tracking emphasised um, those, those same aspects from exactly from those writers which you identify, and also this kind of quite, this perception of people involved in it as being quite culty, uh, and, and, and overly obsessive and this kind of thing, which again was in a lot of the early writings, uh, journalistic writing, which was quite critical. And it's taken quite a long time to, to move away from that, I think. Yeah, well, when, then when we start doing empirical research, then we see that, okay, um, things are a bit more complex and, mm. and there are layers and, and you know, um, of course, you know, the whole... Um, biopower framework. Of course, it's an important part, you know, we are talking about uh, informatics of domination in, in many ways, but then where it's brought, and, and I think that the interesting thing is that datification per se is, is, is not going to one direction. It's going to many different directions. There are a lot of people who are trying to uh, do things around these new data sets and 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 I think it's important now to have um, interdisciplinary research discussion because we need also data analysts uh, on board who can who can work with work with us and and they need our imagination I think that's uh, that has become very clear that that we can bring them research questions that they cannot uh, cannot frame themselves and, and and together we can perhaps you know demonstrate that what what, what this kind of uh, it's, it's it's still a resource also it mm. is a resource it's uh, there's a lot of domination but there's also you know I guess I I, I, I want to be always you know a bit hopeful you know even though you know the world doesn't give much <laughs> No, 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 we should definitely end on a positive note. And yeah, yeah, we yeah, won't talk about yeah, exactly. more negative things. Exactly, um, exactly. And great to talk to you, uh, Mina. Yeah. Uh, and thanks so much. And uh, hopefully we, we can maybe have another another chat, uh, kind of um, catch up about this again uh, sometime in the future as well. Um, yeah, but, we um, will. I'll uh, say bye for now and uh, great to uh, speak to you. Great to speak to you too. Thanks. Bye. 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 So, that was my interview with Mina Ruckenstein. I hope you enjoyed it. As usual, I'll be putting some links up on my blog uh, to articles uh, by Mina and the other people we discussed. I'd also appreciate any comments you have, um, anything you want to disagree with, agree with, or add to the discussion. You can find my blog, which is thisisnotasociology.blog. You can find me on Twitter, at ChrisHTill. And you can leave a review on iTunes, which might also help people to find out about the podcast. The theme music is Bleeps Galore by Rocco. The incidental music is Disco Stomp by Jonas78. 
and the podcast was written, presented, produced and edited by me. Next week I'll be talking to Tamar Sharon. Hope to see you then.